been so blessed by the worship this morning. Everything just came together. Even the songster's message, thank you. Bow the knee, we humbly bow. Just in the theme of the three kings who bowed and worshipped the baby Jesus. So just to recap, tomorrow, January the 6th is... is not Tuesday. It is going to be Monday. You're a day out, Elliot. Tuesday, the 6th of January is... It is indeed Monday. Moving on. The 12th day of Christmas. I hadn't twigged, but did you know that William Shakespeare wrote Twelfth Night? Did you know that's where the title came from? He was asked and commissioned, apparently, to write something for the Feast of Epiphany. It got nothing to do with the theme, but as entertainment for the final day of Christmas. I had not realised that at all. So Twelfth Night, and also it is tomorrow in the church calendar, the Feast of Epiphany. In the Orthodox and Catholic Church celebrated on one day, in the Protestant Church is celebrated over a period of weeks, so Epiphany leading us into Lent and then into Easter. So I can't remember if it's Epiphany six weeks or eight weeks, but it's something like that, but you can work it out. Then there's a period of Lent which is marked by Ash Wednesday and then into Easter. So it's a beautiful cycle. And um, it's also our son's birthday. I just remembered tomorrow as well. So I hadn't realised that his birthday is always on the day of Epiphany, which is lovely. We must remember to FaceTime him, Richard. Remind me tomorrow. Okay, so it's um, 12 days after Christmas, the Feast of Epiphany. And, and what Epiphany means is shining forth. God's light shining, but not just shining down, shining forth, shining forwards, leading us like the star led the wise men to give them a direction of travel. So the shining forwards, and it's linked to the, the story of the three, uh, three kings, the three wise men following the star. So we have to let these guys lead us out of Christmas and into the world where the glory of God is not only revealed in the incarnation at Christmas, at the nativity, but forwards into a world that's full of God's glory, right round the year and forever. Let them lead us out. So we have to go back to this narrative. What did those guys see in the sky that night? What grabbed their attention? What so motivated them that they had to set off for a strange land? Something had been revealed to them, something really, really big for them to get out of their beds and pack up and set off, hadn't it? Something had shone forth for them that said, come this way. But what was so big that it changed their lives forever? Because that poem, Journey of the Major, says it was a birth, but it was also a death for us, a death of something, that we might live a new life. In the Bible, there's so much poetic license around the nativity accounts, to be frank, that it's almost hard to get back 
to some of the history. Now, that doesn't mean it's any less the word of God. Because I believe that God can speak to us how he chooses to speak to us. He can choose to speak to us through historical fact. He can choose to speak to us through poetry. He can choose to communicate to us through art. So it's still the word of God. But there's no doubt there's lots of symbolism that's been kind of added to the nativity accounts. And that's true of the three kings or the wise men, or whatever you wish to call them. And we'll come to that in a moment. The truth is we don't have a huge amount of historical detail about them. Matthew says they came from the east. That's probably Iran or Persia, as it was known. We say there were three wise men, as you've seen this morning, but it was probably more. Through church history, it's been two, three, four, Eight, even 12 at times. We call them Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. But those names emerged in the 7th century. And the star, was it supernatural? Was it a regular star? Was it a comet? I really do believe that this poetic license is part of the truth of the authority of God, because these symbols all have huge meaning for us. And as I said, poetic license doesn't make the story any less true. In fact, we could argue that the lack of historical details around the wise men reminds us that this epiphany journey is not just the wise men's journey, it's everyone's journey. It's our journey. So who are they? And what significant part do they play in the nativity narrative? As far as we know, in terms of historical research, there were three kings, or the three wise men, were actually Zoroastrian or pagan priests. That's a little bit shocking, isn't it? Greek Maju or Magi. Persian Magi were famous for their experience in astrology, heaven forbid. Their magical powers. In other words, they were pagan sorcerers. You know, I think we have a hard time accepting pagan priests at the manger of Jesus. History tells us this is so, and that's why their names have changed. Martin Luther was adamant that you cannot have pagan priests, for goodness sake, at the manger. And it's him who calls them first wise men. He won't have it. It just won't do. By the time the King James's translation in 1604 occurs, the wise men get recast as three kings. What's their place then as pagan priests in the nativity story? Well, I think it might have something to do with the stranger, 
the foreigner being welcome in the presence of Christ. It's also something about the stranger, the odd one, the one not like us, who is different, being the one in whom we may actually find God. The stranger, says the nativity story, may be the one who teaches us and changes us as God is revealed in and through them. You see, these pagan priests, these sorcerers, and I'm going to keep using that word this morning because that's more nearer the heart of the matter than wise men or kings. They are the ones who were so open-hearted that they find Jesus faster than any king, any Pharisee, any scribe, or any ruler in Jerusalem. Now, we're fearful of the stranger. I mean, we as in all of us. We are universally, every human person, fearful of strangers. We should be amazed at how deep-seated this fear is of those who are different coming among us to unsettle us and to change us and to challenge our assumptions. It's always been the case, hasn't it? But in recent times, fear-mongering about the foreigner seems to have kind of taken on a political emphasis, a, a sort of international global meaning. It's moved from margin to mainstream. And what was once something your racist great-uncle might say at Christmas dinner, under the influence of too much alcohol, are now poly policy positions of presidents and prime ministers. So let's have harsher immigration policies. Let's build higher walls. Let's increase our gated communities. Let's ex exclude the pagan priests from the manger. Or at least let us change their title to make us feel better. Sadly, we hardly notice that those walls and those gates are actually also boxing us in and locking us up and rendering us prisoners of our fear. You see, nothing is ever gained by closing windows and barricading doors. And so I am grateful for those pagan priests today who were welcome with their alien ways to kneel at the manger, teaching us the power of hospitality and revealing their capacity to worship the one so utterly different to whom they had expected when they started out their journey. The God who challenged every assumption about who God wants to be for them. And this is how it happens. You see, those pagan priests set out following the prophecy in Isaiah 60. And it's the prophecy that we had at the beginning of our service this morning that Richard read. 
They looked at this when they saw the star and they thought, we'll follow that, we'll go with that. And look, that prophecy is telling us to go to Jerusalem, which predicts defeated Israel being restored to its former glory. An appealing prophecy to the rulers who've lost their power and want it back, who've lost the status quo and want it back, to put things back how they used to be. It's a very popular prophecy. But arriving in Jerusalem, having followed that prophecy, they receive fresh warning to follow the prophecy in, I- in Micah, chapter 5. Someone says to them, actually, mates, you've got it wrong. You followed the wrong prophecy. This is the one you need to be following, Micah chapter 5. And that prophecy, which we, we've read many times over the Christmas season, is going to divert them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Do you remember this? Micah, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. Do you remember that one from the Christmas season? You're going the wrong way the pagan priests are told. You shouldn't be here in Jerusalem. You need to get over to Bethlehem, to that peasant Messiah, not the one in wealth and glory. Now, interestingly, Walter Bruegemann says that there are geographically nine miles between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Have you ever been to the Holy Land? Hands up if you've been. Yes. Now, Richard and my experience of it was that everything is so much smaller than you think. Is that right? The distances. So from Hebron Valley, you know, from, from sort of Garden of Gethsemane to Jerusalem, when, when we read in the Bible and Jesus, it took a whole day, what it meant is it took a whole day for him to walk there, not to go by tube. And so, so to walk wasn't, wasn't actually very far. And you can see the city from everything seems so much more mini when you're actually in the Holy Land. So when we think of, oh, the, the Holy Family, they traveled all the way from Bethlehem to Nazareth. It's only a few miles. So Jerusalem and Bethlehem are only nine miles apart. And Walter Bruegemann, our lovely American scholar, says they were off by nine miles. The wise men were off by nine miles. And he then goes on to challenge us, saying, most of us are off by nine miles, looking in the wrong place for Jesus. So this morning, could we be off by nine miles by thinking of the wise men as kings rather than pagan priests? And digging a little bit deeper... How does it feel to know that strangers sometimes lead us to Jesus and to open our hearts to the stranger amongst us? 
We make a serious mistake when we think of welcoming the stranger as some sort of good and virtuous deed on our part. No, all too often, that strange place, the world of the stranger, is where we are going to find the cutting edge of God's future, says this narrative. The place where light enters the world and God's glory will be revealed there. We kind of know this, don't we? We know that our harvest supper, when we invite the guys from number 10 to come and play table tennis with us, we know as a community that we're not only doing something good for someone else, but we're actually inhabiting the kingdom. Don't you come away from that event feeling more changed and transformed by the presence of those beautiful people in our midst? Don't we some, in some ways feel larger in our spirits by breaking through the walls and mixing What about our carol service hosted by number 10? In that thin space. Were we doing good for those guys by giving them food? Or were they changing us as we met Christ in that place through them and through their stories? The only reason we know anything of Jesus is because we were welcomed in the door like those strangers. Isn't that true? A light appeared for us which led us to Jesus, a light which speaks of a hope for the world, born not by ironing out our differences, but by welcoming and positively acknowledging those who are different, to sit next to us, for us to engage with. You see, when it comes to Jesus, something new is always happening. Some strange newness is always there, knocking down walls, asking to be included, asking to be understood, asking to be welcomed like Jesus welcomes us. Regent Hall now has a theology of welcome that is going to make huge demands on us. And welcoming the stranger in the name of God's hospitality won't be without its challenges. As the Magi discovered, traveling into strange new lands is always strange and weird and costly and unsettling and it's going to cost us we know this any time we find ourselves in a new environment a new job a new church we sense the unwritten etiquette that you should fit in you're welcome here as long as you don't come in and change things if you're being if you're willing to be like us to look like us, to think like us, you're welcome. If not, well, we're not quite so sure about you. We might try and mould you a little. We might screen you 
till you prove yourself a bit better. You see, the thing is, it's basic human nature. We all do it. We all want to group around those like us and screen out those things and people we're a bit fearful of. And yet, on the other hand, we know what it's like to be the stranger, don't you? I do. The one who sees what those who've been around for a long time can't see anymore. We can see the embedded assumptions that need to be unearthed and challenged. And that's why it's so important if you're in a new environment. You need to write those things down quickly. Observe them, because soon you're going to get used to those things too. And the structures that perpetuate the exclusion of those who are different. And so it's a strange paradox that we who follow Jesus are required to be sojourners, strangers in a strange land. Yet at the same time as being the stranger in a strange land, we must also welcome the stranger, the one who doesn't quite fit. It seems almost untenable, but it is the calling So, historically, we don't know what the wise men experienced. Or, you see, I've gone back. We don't know what those pagan priests truly experienced in some ways. But I do know there are times when we experience epiphany ourselves. Moments when the night sky has lit up, our minds and hearts have broken open, become illumined, when suddenly, just by a little change of attitude or a thought or somebody inspiring us or something we read or something we reflected of, in that moment, our hearts got a bit bigger. And our minds are opened up to a slightly bigger horizon than we knew before. And you know, when you've been there, you can't go back, can you? You can't go back to how it was. Moments that give us courage to travel beyond borders and boundaries that used to chain us in. The wise men, the pagan priests, the three kings, they begin to see a bigger world, to imagine their lives as part of a larger story. This is what happens. The journey of the Magi. They say... We experience birth, but we experience death. Something died in us at that moment as we bowed and worshipped the King of Kings. Could it be that the one who created life, who hung the stars in the sky, noticed them, knew them, lived with them, and was calling them? And could it be that the light in the sky was the reflection of the divine light that wants to burn in and for all of us? To ask these questions is to begin the journey with the pagan priests, with the stranger, the journey that travels a different route, nine miles off to Jesus, 
the Christ child. So may we, with the wise men, venture into the brave new land of 2020 